Good morning, Grace. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5a. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Then he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. This week we kick off our Advent series entitled Peace on Earth, as Pastor Andrew mentioned. Advent is a Latin term. It simply means coming or arrival. And Christians have historically celebrated Advent for the four weeks leading up to Christmas as a reminder of the coming of Jesus and the waiting that comes along with his arrival. And so God's people in the entire world waited hundreds of years for God to fulfill his promises in the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah. And sure enough, 2020, we find ourselves in another year of waiting. We're waiting for this pandemic to be over, aren't we? We're waiting to be able to gather with friends and family without the risk of getting COVID or without masks on. We're waiting as a church to gather in person as one united church family yet again. There's a lot of waiting this year, and it's been really hard on us. In fact, it's been such a tough year that I've started seeing articles online where a number of writers or thinkers are actually questioning whether it's worth celebrating Christmas in a season like this, in a year like this. Good Housekeeping had an article, and the title was, Should Christmas 2020 Be Canceled? 2020 has been so full of disappointment, so full of loss, that people are, are, are submitting, maybe the attempt to celebrate Christmas in a time like this is, is going to feel forced and insincere. I mean, even Charlie Brown didn't want to celebrate Christmas, Right? <laughs> I would submit to you that as hard as 2020 has been for you personally and for our world, Christmas is still worth celebrating, even if it looks different. In fact, I would say that the worse our circumstances have been, the more difficult and messy life is, the greater the importance 
and the gravity of celebrating the birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. You see, Jesus slipped into our world 2,000 years ago, into our messy and broken world on that starry night 2,000 years ago, and, and we, we sang it in that first song, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us. And Christmas is a yearly reminder that even though waiting is hard, even though we struggle to see how God could be working in the midst of our disappointments and our struggles, even in a world where there is, it doesn't feel like there's peace, Christmas reminds us that God will come through with His promises. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And so Christmas calls us to wait with hope. But we don't just wait to celebrate His first Advent. We actually know that Jesus came and we are now waiting for His second Advent, for His second coming. And we wait with anticipation. We sang, Born that men no more may die. Do you believe that? He was born so that you and I will not die spiritually. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so Christmas is not just about waiting with hope, it's actually also about peace on earth. It's about Jesus giving us a peace that the world cannot take away and that the world could not give us. And that's our focus in this series. We want to explore how the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, offers us an enduring peace. Peace even in the midst of the storms of life. So this morning, Micah 5, the arrival of our shepherd king. Turn to, to Micah if you haven't already. We're going to see the announcement of Jesus' arrival comes with a promise that he would be our shepherd king who would give us lasting peace. The book of Micah is in the middle of your Bible. If you haven't found it already, turn to Psalms, which is right in the middle, and then start going through the prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Keep going. Micah is considered a minor prophet. It just means his book is so small, you'll flip through it if you go too quickly. Micah was a prophet who lived 700 years before the, the birth of Jesus. He actually ministered at the same exact time as Isaiah, who we're going to listen to next week from his prophecy. And Micah witnessed the Assyrian army coming down to decimate the land of Israel. And they end up taking captive the ten northern tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 1 speaks of the siege. The Assyrian king, his name is Sennacherib, he comes down in 701 BC, he destroys the land, and he takes the vast majority of the people into exile. And not long after this, a few years later, Babylon will come down and destroy the southern kingdom, and totally destroy Jerusalem, and destroy the temple, and he'll take captive the southern kingdom of Judah. And Micah here stands before God's people with this hard-hitting message of divine judgment. He's going to say, listen, Assyria is coming. They're on our doorstep. And you know why? It's because we as God's people have sinned. And he says specifically, you've been worshiping idols. You've been taking advantage of the poor. You're being deceitful in your business practices. And he calls them out on their sin. 
We just sang peace on earth and we talked about our injustice, blind to injustice. Don't, don't think that, that we're using worldly language. That's biblical language. It's what the prophets all call the people out on. They're a mess spiritually and socially. And Micah stands before God's people and he prophesies. It's a very dark book. In fact, Micah is known as a prophet of doom. Lots of judgment. And yet, right in the middle of the dark news, this, this section of chapter 5 is actually the pillar of which everything else is kind of wrapped around. It's a, it's a central beam of light in the middle of this dark news. This is hope. This is, this is a good news of a future king who will rescue his, his people and give them peace. Micah reassures them, and in spite of their sin, God stands ready to rescue his people if they'll turn. And he does it in the most unexpected ways. Look at verse 1 again. Here's our first lesson. Find your hope in the promise of a Savior. Verse 1, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, or O city of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah says, get ready for battle, Israel. You might as well. It's going to be futile. You don't stand a chance, but you might as well get ready. A powerful enemy is coming down, and he's knocking on our doorstep, and they're going to invade our land and unleash terrible destruction. And he says, with a rod, they'll strike the judge or the ruler of Israel in the, tree, in the cheek. To strike someone on the cheek in the Middle East is one of the greatest insults. It's complete humiliation. It's the epitome of humiliation. In other words, Micah is saying, Israel, you're going to be humiliated by Assyria. Your king doesn't even stand a chance. It's a dire situation. He's, he's painting the picture that things are really bad and they're going to get worse. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to be in a bad situation that will likely get worse before it gets better? We all know what that's like, don't we? It feels unnerving. We're in the midst of a difficult season right now. As a people, as a nation, as a world, it's hard to hold on to hope, isn't it? Because we want relief now. Things are still really bad, and this winter, all the experts are saying things are going to get worse, and so we're trying to figure out, what do we do? What do we do? A vaccine's on the way, but it can't get here fast enough. And yet we're already exhausted and even frustrated by all the safety measures that we're having to take. Or maybe for you, it's not COVID at all. Maybe it's something more personal. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship or the struggle with a mental health issue or an unhealthy habit that you can't break or a financial hardship or a surprising diagnosis or the loss of a loved one. We know what it's like to be stuck in a bad situation that seems like it can only get worse. Where do you turn? What do you do? Micah lays out the difficulties in these first four chapters and in this first verse of chapter 5. He says things are bad, they're going to get worse. And then he offers them hope. But it's a strange hope. It's a surprising hope. It's not where you would expect it. Verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Micah says, if you want to look for hope today, don't look for hope in the halls of power. Don't look for hope in Jerusalem for your security. It's not going to come from there. If, if, if you were in Israel and you were looking for hope, you would expect it's going to come from Jerusalem. That's the spiritual center of our nation. That's where the leaders are. That, they're the ones, they're the ones that, they're going to find a way for us to get through this. And Micah says, nope, you won't find it there. If you were here today, Micah would say, don't look for what's happening in Washington to find your sense of hope about the future. Unless you, unless you think hope is, is like a, a roller coaster ride. Go ahead and jump on. Good luck. Don't look for hope in the perfect present this, this season or, or decorating your house extra special this year. No, don't look for hope in any of those things. Find your hope in the promise of a Savior. That's what Micah is saying. A ruler is coming, he says. A king, from, who he says it's from of old, from ancient days. One who will shepherd his people, verse 4, and be their peace. Christian, the coming of Jesus was predicted 700 years before his birth. Why? Why would it even make a difference for them? Because in the darkness that they were experiencing, in the darkness of Israel's history, they needed hope. A hope that would sustain them through the disappointments and the suffering. A hope that a leader would come who would rescue them from their enemies once and for all and protect them as a good and great shepherd. Pastor Brady asked the same question last week, and I just want to press in a little bit. What are you hoping in today? A better job? A new relationship? Healing from a sickness? As Pastor Andrew said earlier, those are all good things. Pray for them. Pursue them. Just don't make them your hope. Keep hoping in a God who, met your, who saw your greatest need, salvation from sin and death. A God who stepped out of heaven and came down as a baby. A God who went to the cross so that if you put your faith in Him, you could have life now and eternal life to come. What are you hoping in today? Put your hope in the arrival of a Savior, in the coming of a Savior. Lesson two. Accept the reality that God's ways will always seem strange to us. In verse 2, when Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, there's a contrast. Muster your troops, but the arrival of God's Messiah will not come from Jerusalem, but Bethlehem. He's saying, Bethlehem you're, is remarkable because it's unremarkable. It's an insignificant town. There's nothing special about Bethlehem. It didn't even make it into the list of clans in Judah, in Joshua's listing of clans. That's what he's saying. You're too little to be even named among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem is a one-stoplight town. Have you ever, been through, have you ever driven through a one-stoplight town? Yep, somewhere. I, I have not done much. I, I live here on the East Coast, but we've been out west a couple times at Midwest, and you're driving for miles and miles and miles and miles, and there's nothing. If you remember the kids' movie Cars, 
Radiator Springs. That's Bethlehem. Okay? Nobody knows and nobody cares about Radiator Springs. Bethlehem was insignificant culturally, politically, militarily. In fact, it's so obscure, Micah has to cite not only the town, but also the district. Bethlehem Ephrathah, so as not to confuse it with another Bethlehem further north. And yet the Lord says, it's in this little town of Bethlehem, this no-name town, this insignificant town, that I'm going to launch my rescue plan that's not only going to rescue Israel, but the entire world. Peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, the choice of Bethlehem teaches us that God's ways will always seem strange to us. Isn't that what Isaiah tells us in his book, in his prophecy? Isaiah tells us God's ways are not our ways. In fact, God says it in first person through Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. As high are the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. We think we can figure things out, don't we? We're good at figuring things out. We can, we can get smart, we can read books, we can research, and we think we're experts. And God says, wait a minute, you, that piece of dust right there that you can only see as a microscope, you think you know what I'm doing in this universe? You, a blip on the string of history, you think you know the end from the beginning? Isn't that why we worry? Because we want to be in control? We think we can be in control. And God says, listen, you're never going to understand my ways. Bethlehem was unique. It was the home of David. The prophet Samuel, remember, he went to Bethlehem to anoint a future king. And he tells Jesse, bring out all your sons. One of your sons is going to be king. And Jesse brings out all of his larger and stronger sons And Samuel's thinking, oh yeah, those are some good ones. And God says, it's none of them. Samuel's like, is there anyone else? Jesse's like, "Ah, I mean, I got my little ruddy youngest son, but I didn't even bring him in. He's out in the field. Well, get him. Comes in. God says, that's the one. You know why? Because I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. I don't do things the way you think I'm going to do things. I don't fit into your plans. You have to fit into my plans. You see, God chooses often the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the things that are insignificant and he infuses them with significance. He does things in strange ways and the birthplace of of the Savior, the Messiah of Bethlehem is his proof that he will do things his way and they will always seem strange to us. We know that Jewish scholars accepted Micah's prophecy as a prophecy about the Messiah. We know that they know this was about a coming 
king, a coming rescuer, someone who would deliver God's people. How do we know? Because 700 years later, when it talks about kings or wise men coming from the east to worship this baby, and they go to King Herod in his temple, and they say, where is the baby that we can worship him? And Herod's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It says in in Matthew 2, he gathers all the scholars up, and he asks them, what are they talking about? And all of them tell him, oh, yeah, we know. We've known for a while in Bethlehem is where the Messiah is going to be born, where this great king is going to be born. And they quote Micah. They quote Micah to Herod and Herod to the wise men. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Two reasons, I think. At least two. One, to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. You see, if you're here this morning, or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, and maybe you're still wrestling with the claims of Christianity, maybe you, maybe you know some things about the Bible but don't know enough to know what you believe and you're exploring that, thank you for being here. We're glad you're here. But you need to know that what makes Christianity so believable, so plausible, is that all the predictions made about Jesus hundreds of years earlier come true. All of them are true in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I invite you to do your homework. No other religious leader can claim that. God made it so that all the predictions about the Messiah would come together in this strange way when a a young girl named Mary is betrothed or, or engaged to be married to Joseph and she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit and Mary uh, and Joseph and they're waiting to get married and at the same time Caesar has this weird scuffle with Herod and Caesar says, all right, fine, I'm going to make everyone in your district uh, pay a tax. Oh, and by the way, they're going to have to go to their hometown where, where their family is from, which was a weird thing to do at the time. And, and he makes them all go there. And so Joseph and Mary pack up their stuff and they ride on to Bethlehem because they didn't live there. And, and they're on this journey. And it just so happens they be on this journey when she's nine months pregnant. And it just so happens that there's no room in the inn and they have to give birth in some kind of cave or shelter next to animals. Why? So that 700 years later, Micah's prophecy would come true to a T. So that all the prophecies about the Savior, this baby who would be born to this young virgin, would be true. Do You see, God's ways will always seem strange to us. Can you imagine Joseph standing next to the donkey as Mary, I'm sure, was riding? And he's thinking, what awful timing for a tax. You know, it's funny, my, my best friend, uh, his wife's pregnant, with the, she was pregnant with their fifth child, uh, and her due date was de- December 5th, and they bought a house, and their move date was last Saturday, and they've been working for months to make this, and they were going to have this big move, and get in the house a week before she, uh, the baby was going to be born, and Saturday morning, move day, people are coming at 8 a.m., at 6 a.m., her water broke. Everybody comes to their house. They, they, there was a lot of urgency, you can imagine. They move all their stuff from one place to an hour later to another place, an hour away to their new home, get everything ready, get everything unsettled. Five o'clock, everybody leaves the house. Eight o'clock, they drive to the hospital. One a.m., the baby's born. 
that's kind of crazy timing, isn't it? I'm sure that wasn't, that wasn't what they planned. I know it wasn't. God's ways are not our ways. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? To fulfill Testament prophecy, be it number two, to show us that God uses ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary plans. God uses ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary plans. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad God just doesn't just use the best and the brightest? Aren't you glad God delights to use unlikely instruments like you and I to display his glory and his grace? When God says to Israel, I'm going to choose, I chose you. It wasn't because Israel was the greatest nation. In fact, he tells them, you were the smallest, most insignificant. When he chose David, it wasn't because he was the firstborn or the favored. No, he was the youngest, the least likely to become king. God works in unexpected ways to display his glory and his grace. Do you believe that? You see, God came into the world not as a powerful angel or the son of a great king, but as a humble baby. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a feeding trough. He wasn't born to a queen, but to an unwed peasant girl. God loves to bring his salvation, his hope, his joy, his peace in unexpected ways. So I want to ask you this morning, are you open to see how God might show up in your life this Christmas? Are you open to see, are you willing to set aside whatever expectations you have of God and trust Him to work in unexpected ways? I don't know what you're going through today. But here's what I do know. That your journey, just as much as my journey, has had twists and turns that we would not have chosen. Will you trust God to work all things out for your good? Jesus, Jesus may not give you the relationship you want, or the job you want, or the healing you want, or the things that you and I think will make our lives better. But in the humility of God coming down as a baby, Jesus gives us what we need most, and that is life. Real life. Life now and eternal life to come. A restored relationship with our Creator. A a freedom from the penalty of sin. Assurance of His unconditional love. And a glorious future where there is no more sin and suffering. Listen, I wish I could tell you that at Christmas time, Jesus came to fix all your problems, but He didn't. Because then you wouldn't need a savior, you would just need a problem solver. The point is, you don't need a problem solver. You need a savior. Can you accept, can we accept the reality that God's ways will always seem strange to us, and yet give him the benefit of the the doubt, to trust him to know that he will work, he will sustain. He will strengthen. He will lead us. He will see us through. Lesson three, trust your shepherd king to lead you and give you peace. Verses two and three describe a child who'll be born a ruler or king. 
And it uses interesting language. He'll be from of old, from ancient days. Scholars debate, does this just mean that his prediction was, was from long ago? Likely, it means at least that, right? From, from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we know from the very beginning, a, a rescuer was promised. Jesus, God promised Adam and Eve that a seed of Eve would come and would crush the head of Satan. His coming was from of old. It's been long predicted. He, God told David, you will always have a son sit on the throne. In fact, you're going to have a son who's going to sit on your throne forever. It could also refer to this idea from ancient days. It could be referring to the, the eternal, the divine nature of this child. We don't know. Isaiah. Next week we're going to look at Isaiah. He's going to make it very clear that this child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's no question in Micah's mind who this child is, his divine nature. The verses 4 and 5 tell us that he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. It tells us what he will do, what this king will do. He'll protect his people and he shall be their peace. He'll protect his people by shepherding them. He says they'll dwell secure. By saying he'll shepherd his people, it's a further link to his great-great-grandfather David, who was an ordinary shepherd, and then became a shepherd of God's people as king. Knowing this, it makes sense that when Jesus was speaking to a crowd on a momentous occasion. He stood up and he said these immortal words. I am the good shepherd. No, how could you say that? How could they say, how, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, Jesus is the shepherd king predicted in Micah 5. He is the good shepherd. He knows what you need. This harkens back to, to David talking about God being our shepherd in Psalm 23. David said, God is the good shepherd. Jesus is that good shepherd. He knows how to lead us, and he knows how to lead us at times to, to green pastures and quiet waters. Have you ever experienced God leading you to a place where you can find rest for your soul? Those are amazing moments. Sometimes they're just moments, but they're real, aren't they? You can't describe it, but you know, you have this sense, God is with you. He's given you a peace. He's, he's, he's reminding you of his goodness by the good things he's provided, and you feel it, and it's wonderful. But he is also the kind of shepherd who will, as you approach that dark valley, will say to you, not, look, hey, hey, good luck. I'll meet you on the other side. No. He's the kind of shepherd that says, listen, we're going to now go through a dark valley. You weren't expecting this, and I didn't warn you ahead of time because you wouldn't have handled it well. You wouldn't have known what to do with it. But we're about to go through a dark valley, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Now, you stay right by my side, and if things get too difficult and you feel like you can't go any further, remember, I'm here with you. In fact, I'm, I can carry you. And when you get to the point when you say, listen, Jesus, I can't make it any longer. 
I feel like the darkness is going to swallow me up. You remember that you have a shepherd who didn't just say, I'm going to walk with you through this dark valley. You have a shepherd who actually laid down his life in that dark valley so that you can make it through on the other side. That's the kind of shepherd we have. That's good news this morning. Jesus will protect his people. He will shepherd him. Are you trusting Jesus to shepherd and protect you? Micah says he'll shepherd his flock in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God. What's the extent of his reign? It says, verse 4, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus' rescue mission was never limited to Israel. That's too small a thing. Jesus was always, his, his plan was always to rescue Jews and Gentiles. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's been his plan. The invitation of Jesus goes to everyone, to the ends of the earth, to the people in Algeria, who I prayed for earlier, to the people in Papua New Guinea, to the people in South America, to the people in Antarctica, to the people in Greenland, to the people in Bowie and Laurel and Greenbelt and Crofton and Annapolis or wherever you live, Jesus came in the power of the Lord to rescue no one is excluded from this invitation. No one. It doesn't matter your, your, your social cultural background. It doesn't matter your economic status. Jesus came for you. You hear me? Some people think they're too far gone. No, Jesus came for you. Some people think they're above this. You don't need this. No, Jesus came for you. I invite you today Put your trust in Jesus as the good shepherd, your savior. Finally, in verse 5a, it says, and he shall be their peace. One day, Jesus will return. His second advent, his second coming. The Bible has a lot to say about what will happen. He'll rule over a kingdom right here on earth. He'll usher in a great era of peace. In fact, Micah chapter 4 verse 3 says, like, says this, He shall judge between my peoples and shall decide for strong nations far and away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. He's talking about the future, the second advent of Jesus. We won't need weapons because we'll be living in peace. No more conflict. No more cancer. No more death. None of it's gone. Are you looking forward to that day? Psalm 96, one pastor was, I was listening to a sermon this week and he quoted Psalm, at the end of Psalm 96 when, he said, when it says, uh, and the mountains and hills will, will leap for joy and the trees will sing for joy. And he says, do you think that that's just some kind of analogy or some kind of, you know, metaphor that the trees are going to sing? And he said, no, they're going to sing. Because in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, things are going to be different. Even trees will be able to voice. It'll be like Narnia. It'll be like Lord of the Rings. You see, you think those are fairy tales. Those are just, those are just memory traces of our hearts. We know that when things come alive, everything is going to be different. 
even if you're not a Christian, my guess is your heart yearns for that kind of future. How do I know? Because just look at the great stories of history. Just look at the movies and the novels and the stories that we love. They all, they all have the same storyline. Uh, the, the world was once at peace, everything was fine, and a great evil has invaded our world, and we can't do anything to stop it, and we try our hardest, but we keep failing, and we need a hero who needs to come, not from within us, but from, from outside of us, who needs to come in and save us and lay down his life and restore peace. Why do all, of our, why do all the great stories have that storyline? You think it's because we, we're geniuses and we... No! It's because it is the great storyline. It is the gospel story. There's a memory trace in our heart. We know that this is true. And movie critics hate those kind of movies. They want the movies that are like weird. They love the movies that are they're strange and they're not clear, right? They're very vague and they leave you wondering what happened. They're like, oh, that's a great movie. The artistic, about, and, and we're like, just give me Avengers, okay? Just give me Harry Potter, right? right? There's good, there's evil, and good wins. Somehow, some way. Just give me something. Right? Pick your movie. Pick your Disney movie. Pick your any movie that's good. You might say, well, that's just pie in the sky, Mark. I know, yeah, okay, there's going to be peace in the future. That's been the Christian narrative. That's what everyone says. But, but listen, there's good news now. Jesus can be our peace now. You can have peace even before that great time of peace because Paul quotes Micah right here in Ephesians 2.14 and he says, Jesus himself is our peace. And he's not referring to the future. He's referring to right now. Jesus coming down at Christmas is the inauguration of God restoring everything that sin has destroyed. And remember, Micah is speaking during a time of great turmoil and chaos, and yet he declares to God's people, this Messiah will be your peace. That tells me that I can stand before you this morning in the heaviness and the weightiness of it all, in the disappointments and the wounds, and tell you that no matter what you're going through, no matter what the doctors have said, no matter what your family situation is like, no matter what you're going through at work, no matter what you might be enduring internally or externally, Jesus can be your peace now. You can experience a peace that the world cannot give you and that the world cannot take away. You see, when you turn from sin and receive Jesus as your Messiah, as your Savior, as your shepherd, something fundamental changes about you. And that's what he's saying in Ephesians 2. God destroys the wall between him and us, between us and each other. And we are in Christ and Christ in us. And we're adopted into God's family. And the promise now is nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. You pick it. Name the worst thing. You name it. I Write it down this afternoon, and then I want you to exit out and write, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No hellish thing on earth can separate us from his great love because he's won the battle. He said, what about death? What if I have to experience death? I know. I truly, truly I know. I say this all the time. Listen, it's normal to hurt but it's possible to hope. 
You can be, as Paul says, you can be ever sorrowing yet ever rejoicing. Please don't let anyone tell you the foolish idea that it has to be one or the other. You, you're just, it's all sorrow. It's all doom and gloom. Or it's all got to be cheery and lighthearted and happy, 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 happy. No, that's ridiculous. That's not Christianity. Christianity is both realities at the same time. Christianity is tears in your eyes singing joy to the world. The Lord has come. He can give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. How? It starts with a, in an unassuming baby in a manger. But it doesn't end there because Jesus grows up. He lives a perfect life. It says he, he lives in the strength and power of the Lord. He performs miracles and preaches the arrival of the kingdom of God and he announces himself as the king and yet the people reject him and they crucify him on a cross where yet again we see God's way seems strange to us because in the dying of Jesus, the penalty for our sin is paid. Through his death, strangely enough, we get life. And the cross shows us that we can't save ourselves from the, from the enemies of sin and death. We need a hero. We need someone from outside of us to come and rescue us. And he lays down his life. And you know why he did it? Not because he had to. Not because some, of some kind, of, kind of divine mandate. He did it because he loves you. God loves you. Madly loves you. And he came down to rescue you. And he came to be your good shepherd. And we don't need Jesus as our inspiration. We need him as our savior. And in order to do that, he had to experience our sin on the cross, uh, the loneliness and rejection that, that we deserved, so that now when we receive him, we get his righteousness, his acceptance, his eternal life, his glory. It was humbling for him to come as a baby, but more humbling for him to die on the cross. And then he rose from the dead. Why? So that Micah 5a would be true so that he could be your peace. He can give you a peace today that passes all understanding. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ... I want to give you an opportunity to receive him. You see, you don't have to walk down an aisle. You don't even have to be here in person. What you need to do is to understand that you need a Savior. And that Jesus is that Savior. The Bible says, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Saved simply means you'll be rescued from the penalty of sin and death. You'll be given a new heart. You'll be given eternal life. You'll be adopted into God's family. You'll have a love that can never be taken away. And you'll have a glorious future inheritance of being with him forever. But it starts with an admission. And for some of you, maybe that's been the hardest thing. And I'm asking you right now to admit that you are not God. You cannot 
make it on your own. Your good will never outweigh your bad. God will never let you into heaven because you've been good enough. You need to admit you'll never be good enough. You'll never measure up. Humble yourself today. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. Trust Him. Trust Him, not just to forgive your sin now, but trust Him to be your shepherd, to walk with Him, to be your Lord. The Bible says if you do that, and there's nothing special, it just happens in your heart. When you do that, you become a child of God. You become His beloved son or daughter. Father, I pray for everyone who's listening. I pray especially for those who are hurting, those who came in burdened and weary. I pray that you would give us rest. Give us the rest that Jesus himself promised, that he died to give us. I pray for our church that we would be a a beacon of hope and light in this community in the midst of so many things that would cause us to be afraid, that would cause us to shrink back, that would cause us to hold our resources tightly, hold our time tightly, hold our, help us to be free, help us to be willing to lose our lives in order to see that we've already gained life. Help us to be a church that is radically generous, radically loving, and strangely enough, radically ordinary. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. I'm praying for a special move this season, this holiday season, this Christmas. We don't need anything else except you to be everything you promised you would be. I pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.